Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. In this episode, two pioneers in geography, Esri President Jack Dangerman and National Geographic Society CEO Jill Tiefenthaler, discuss technology, geography, and the power of storytelling. Tiefenthaler explains how National Geographic's iconic visual narratives and the maps that often accompany those stories deepen our understanding of how to address the world's biggest challenges. Since 1888, National Geographic has been a nonprofit organization, always has been. And it originally started with a few members, and the goal was really to educate people about the world, to get people out in the world. It was very similar to higher ed, where I came from, of course. But we, a couple years after we started, we had our first expedition to Mount St. Elias, and they climbed the mountain and shared that knowledge with others. And then over the years, started with really a scientific journal approach, and Alexander Graham Bell sat in my seat and was the CEO of National Geographic in the early 20th century, and he really moved it from focusing on the scientific organization to really talking to the public. And so we have this amazing, I think, such an urgent calling right now when we need better, so much to happen in the world, where we're an organization that understands the science, that has trust in the facts, but really does a great job of telling those stories broadly to all kinds of audiences. Storytelling is our superpower, and that's been probably the biggest part of my transition is really understanding how we talk broadly and really get people, not just the usual suspects in those conversations. Yeah, it is a superpower. I like Uh the way you describe it. Everybody understands what a superpower is. And I think Alexander Graham Bell, I didn't know him, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I remember reading in the very beginning, he said something like, the National Geographic Society is all about creating geographic knowledge, and it's also about disseminating geographic knowledge. Absolutely. And the the creating part, what I made up at least, Mm -hmm. was sending out these explorers to collect data and create geographic knowledge. Yeah. That was the exploration thing. And then the magazine really came out about the, the word dissemination yep. of the knowledge. And I, I want to come back to that through, through this evening several ways. What part of National Geographic today is about creating versus what part is dissemination? And yeah. I know these have changed over the last 135 years. But. Yeah, absolutely. Our theory of change is really, we think about really four ways that we make a difference and that mission to illuminate and protect the wonder of our world. We really break that down into first scientific knowledge, right? Creation of scientific knowledge. And we believe that's one of big parts of our mission to contribute to scientific knowledge. And we continue, I think, last this current uh, year, over 600 professional peer-reviewed publications in scientific journals thank the National Geographic support for supporting the work. So continue to do a lot of that work. And we do that work, all of this work, through explorers. We have about 3,000, a little over 3,000 explorers around the world who we support all kinds of professional development, science telling. So we're not just picking them because they're great scientists. We're also picking them because they want to have that action piece. They want to talk to the world. They want to be in the magazine or the movies or at, in a classroom. The second part of our theory of change is conservation. So we have many programs and explorers that we support who are doing having direct impact in protection, direct protection. 
A great example of this is our Pristine Seas program, which is a program that uh, a group of, led by Explorer Enrique Sala, and they travel the world, he and his team, and work on setting up marine protected areas. And they've now helped, along with communities and governments, set up 27 marine protected areas around the world that it's about twice the size of India in our ocean. A long way to go to our goals, but important, so direct protection. And then that superpower piece, we always talk about illumination, but that's really education and storytelling. And education clearly has amazing benefits on its own, just mm -hmm. to educate all of us to be more educated. Same for storytelling, really getting people to care. But at its best, we believe illumination, both education and storytelling, lead to protection. If people have knowledge and they care, they have empathy, then they'll act on their own. So that's a big part of our theory of change. In this room, there was a very famous, what was it called, Laura? The WWW conference where there were 66 people, two at a time, and they tried to explain things to each other. And the audience watched it. And these were what Saul Werman called the 66 smartest people in the world. Watching it, sometimes it was like this, mm -hmm. and sometimes there was actually the ability to have people actually yeah. understood. Mm -hmm. And you notice that if you look carefully at what Jill's doing, she's acknowledging that she gets what I'm talking about. And it's quite extraordinary when you watch people explaining things, storytelling. Mm -hmm. That superpower that you talk about is all about explaining, exploring and explaining. Mm -hmm. Creating science through exploration is largely what I think National Geographic does so well. And then they explain it in this extraordinary way with photography, with text, and these stories. I think the other interesting thing is how that storytelling has had to change over time and the, how it's delivered and how it's received. And I think that's one of the things that has kept National Geographic relevant. I always tell people, it was funny when I was announced that I got this job, I called my parents who were in their 70s at the time and they were so excited and so proud and it was because of the magazine. We got the magazine at home when I was a kid, they loved the magazine. I was a college president at the time and they announced it to my students that I was leaving for this job and I can promise you that I was never cooler with my students than when I was leaving for <laughs> National Geographic. And that is not because of the magazine, it was because we have the largest social media following of any nonprofit organization in the world. I think it's at almost 800 million followers globally between all of our different social media platforms. And so that sort of tells you about storytelling. How do you, the visuals are often the invitation. It used to be maybe reading that whole story in the magazine. Now it might be clicking through the website or watching a TikTok or a short video. One of the challenges that we're facing, and you're facing, I know, is the whole, and I suppose all of us are facing, is the technology changes that are occurring in our world. The whole AI, machine learning, large language models, is it going to take jobs away? I don't think so. Maybe. It'll allow people to do new work. Mm -hmm. That's my thought on it. Yeah. But quite seriously, we're embracing it here and using it and building it into our tools. We are both challenged by some aspects of it, mm -hmm. but we're also just saying we're gonna, we are going to leverage the heck out of large language models and being able to ask geographic questions, 
by professionals. And so our software products, which are our mm -hmm. equivalent of the magazine, television channel, will leverage it. But what about you? What about the issues of journalism? We're seeing journalism being challenged on multiple fronts. Then in some ways, storytelling is journalism. How are you thinking about the future of all the aspects of dissemination, or actually creation and yeah. dissemination? It's both sides. It is. Yep, it is. I'm like you. There's, there are reasons to worry, but I see incredible opportunity, and I have a lot of optimism. And before I get into talking a little bit about the journalism piece, what we're seeing with science and AI is there's some really amazing, exciting work. We have a uh, program um, called Project SETI, um, uh, which is supported by National Geographic in Dominica um, in the Caribbean. And it's now been going for about five years. And they are using these large language models and AI to talk to sperm whales. And they've been using, it's absolutely, if you, I don't know if you, but sperm whales click rather than sing like the humpbacks. And so the clicking, they believe, is probably the easiest animal to be able to use artificial intelligence to begin to understand. So they have huge microphones under the water, and there's a, po a population there of about 200 non-migratory sperm whales that live mm. near Dominica. And every day, all of that data that they pull goes up to the cloud, and they're about I don't know, 25 scientists around the world that are working on that, not only AI experts, but also linguists and others. Yes. And they've now designed, using biomimicry, a, a tracker that they're sticking on the whales. They have a non-invasive policy, so they won't stick anything in. But they've used biomimicry to figure out the little critters that attach themselves to whales. They've copied them and they hold the trackers on so that they can model, the, so they can match the movement and the clicks that they're getting from under the water. And the head scientist there, David Gruber, I just spent some time. They have a lot of their work is happening at Harvard and MIT in the robotics labs there in the Computer Science Center. But they are feeling very confident that within five years we'll be able to communicate. Now, should we communicate is another question, but being able to communicate. And there are multiple other projects that we're funding where people are talking about communication. They're looking at crow communication, one of our amazing scientists in Scotland. Others are looking at elephants and really believing that with machine learning, we're going to be able to uh, have conversations with animals. And that could change the world, right? My first question to David is, what's the first thing we're gonna, you're going to say if you could talk? And he said, we should crowdsource it from the world, right? And right. try to find out. And the number one thing so far that people are saying is, uh, the first thing we should say is sorry, but, <laughs> which is fair enough. So I'd say on the positive side, I always, people get scared about AI, and I think there are good reasons, but it's really going to make amazing yes. advances, I think, in science, which is exciting. On the other side, we all know that the incredible challenge about what is real is something we're facing already with our worries about what are facts, what is reality, et cetera, and AI is going to ramp this up, and we know this already is happening with voice, and it's happening 
with information, but we're also seeing incredible acceleration of this in, in digital in images, right? Everybody saw the picture of the Pope in the coat, right? And the other things that have been produced by, by, by AI. And for us as an organization, which once is so reliant to showing real visuals of the world, um, we want to make sure we have a way to authenticate that. Caitlin's been leading an initiative. We've been working with Adobe on content authenticity, where images that are shared digitally will have metadata that will tell you that they're original. And you'll, so you'll, and if any changes have been made, we'll include that in the metadata. So if you lighten the shape, how you lighten your photograph, or maybe you make yourself look skinnier, or whatever it might be, <laughs> then those would all be captured in the metadata. And very shortly, we think within a year or so, the cameras are also going to have this technology. So when you, the picture is taken originally, that, that metadata started and you know when it's taken and where. Because even though AI can make a beautiful picture of a humpback jumping out of the ocean, I think most people want to know they're seeing a real whale or a real landscape or a real human being. So this is for us with this huge archive, thinking about not only making sure what peop that people, when they see it, they can know it's real by this process, but also protecting all of our IP that everybody's thinking about right now right. as well for creatives and artists. So there's a lot of challenges ahead of us. I think a lot of the work historically around conservation and storytelling in science was also often parachute. You go in, you've set up some great conservation program and then you leave and we found over time that was not very effective, that that work needed to be done in co-creation and collaboration with local communities because those are the people who have a lot of the knowledge that with the scientific knowledge and the indigenous knowledge together is really much more powerful than just one or the other. And also when pe those people that live there have a great stake in protecting those communities in the long term and making it work and bring great knowledge to that. And in addition, working with communities has been a huge change, I think, in all of the conservation landscape and certainly in our work as well. And then also just being, if we're going to get the best talent in the world and may have the most impact, then we need to be an inclusive and equitable organization and a diverse organization. We now have explorers, the sort of traditional explorer. You can see what he probably looked like. He was a handsome white American male, rugged. We still have many of those, thank goodness. But we also have men and women. We're about half women now in our grants for the first time in the last couple of years. And we now have explorers from 140 countries. And wow. last year, 70% of our new grants went to non-American explorers. Being out there in the world and um, bringing the best talent for the world really requires having a really diverse set of explorers and a really inclusive organization. Let me say thank you, Joe, on behalf of everybody here. Thank you, uh, Jack. You can do it yourself. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to Jill Tiefenthaler for sharing the world-changing mission and future vision of National Geographic. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.